Well, let's open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, where we are basking in the great promises of the gospel, promises that assure us of glory. The Apostle Paul concludes this portion of his letter with a climactic chorus of victory. Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we stand amazed under the weight of these great promises, the glory that they hold for us, the comfort and security that they provide to us as your people. Help us to believe them today. Help us to appropriate them today. Help us to live in a way that demonstrates our trust in you. In your name we ask these things. Amen. What then shall we say to these things? Shall we despair? Shall we hang our heads? Slump our shoulders? She would say, gee, I don't know. Complain, maybe, that God hasn't done enough for us? Should we hide in a corner until it's all over? What Paul is really asking is, how then shall we respond? What are we to say to all of these truths? I'll ask it this way. How will you live differently? because of the great promises of Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. How will you live differently? In light of the gospel's promises, our salvation is grounded in God's work in the past, but we are a forward-looking people. We live with our eyes fixed on eternity. Because if you belong to God... If you are in Christ, you will conquer. You will prevail. And these verses give us two reasons to know this. First of all, we prevail because God is with us. 
God is for us. Secondly, we prevail because Christ loves us. So we prevail because God is for us. We prevail because Christ loves us. Verse 31, we prevail because God is for us. If God is for us, and Paul is saying, because, as it is true, as God is for us, this is a summary meaning all the blessings in the verses before. We are in Christ and free from all condemnation. The spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus. God has condemned sin and God has fulfilled the requirement of the law in us by sending his own son. God promises to give life to our mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in us. That is a promise of resurrecting us, raising us from the dead. God has adopted us as sons. He has welcomed us into his family. He has made us heirs with Christ. And we live in the hope of glory. And that glory transcends all of the sufferings of this life. And we are sustained by the intercessions of the Holy Spirit. And we live in the confidence that God is actually orchestrating all circumstances. God is actually ordering all events, all situations, even our failures for good, for our good. God is for us. Listen, God is for you. He is on your side. To drive this home, Paul demonstrates it with three questions. These are three questions that are really rhetorical questions, and they are each answered with the same answer, the same understood answer. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 31. If God is for us, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 33. If God is for us, who is to condemn us? Verse 34. And the understood answer to every one of those questions is no one. No one. No one can succeed in opposing us. No one will successfully bring any charge against us. No one can condemn us. He then follows each of these questions with a proof. A reason that explains why no one can successfully oppose no one can successfully charge us. No one can successfully condemn us. And Paul is returning to this courtroom imagery that he's used already in Romans to talk about our justification, to help us understand, to make sure we understand that God is a judge and every human being stands in a courtroom before him for either condemnation or to be declared right before him. We are declared righteous before God. And the terms he uses in the questions, in these questions and in the proofs, makes this obvious. And what Paul is doing is he's setting forth what will take place at the final judgment of the human race as we all and each stand before God the judge. 
to have believed in Jesus now is to be declared righteous now so that when you stand before the judge on that day, you will be declared guiltless and free and that you can stand there without fear or doubt. If this is the case and our eternal freedom and joy and inheritance are secure, then how should we evaluate the sufferings of this life, this life which is passing away? We know that we will prevail because God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, again, the idea is not that there won't be opposition. We know that there will be those who are against us. It's not that there won't be no one trying, but the question is who can successfully prevent us from finishing the race? Who can successfully disqualify us from glory? What enemy of God and his gospel and his people can turn God against us? Somehow thwart this, this act of justification that God has accomplished through the death of Christ. Who can do that? No one. Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, If God initiated our salvation by giving up his son, not sparing him from the shame, not sparing him from the suffering of death for our sake, how could he, now that we have received his salvation by faith, how could he fail to provide the righteousness we need in that final judgment? Paul makes the same argument back in Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You see Paul's logic. If we are alienated from God and we are his enemies and we are God-haters, but God initiates and loves us and provides for that salvation even at the time that we are his enemies, how is it once he has won us, once he has called us, once he has justified us, how could he ever, even if we fail, even if there are times when we become frustrated with God or angry with God or question God or fall into doubt or fall into sin, how could it be that facing all the hardships of this life, that God could ever then not provide what we need when we're his children. Who can be against us? No one. Also, if God is for us, who shall bring any charge against us? Who shall bring any charge against us? On that day, will anyone be able to stand up and accuse us of guilt? We are very good at accusing ourselves of guilt. Sometimes we need to be a little more honest with ourselves about where our hearts are. 
and sin that we hide. But if we do so, we do so with knowing that we are justified before God already, and he has already provided to deal with that sin. But who will stand up on that day and say, that person, even though Jesus died, even though you called them, even though they believed, they are a failure. They blew it. They were rebels. Can anyone accuse us, bring some sort of charge against us, furnish some kind of evidence proving all of our failures and disobedience? Can someone stand before the judge and, and sway him to render a different verdict? No, because it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Paul's making a couple of points here when he says it is God who justifies. First, it is the judge himself who justifies us, and nobody outranks him. There is no higher court of appeal. No one can bring before a higher court, a higher judge, our sins or our guilt, and somehow appeal the declaration that God the judge makes. We know we have a, a pale example of this in our own judicial system. If a case goes before the Supreme Court in the United States of America and they render a judgment, there is no higher court of appeal. No one can... No one can Bring this before the very judge who has declared us righteous. No one has the authority to challenge his verdict, which is our justification. This person is right with me because they have believed. They have trusted my provision. I provided and they believed. They are righteous. Also, secondly... If anyone has grounds to charge us with sin and rebellion, it is God. And he, the very offended party, the one who is the one who declares us just, the one who is offended, the one who has violated his truth, his laws, his righteousness, he is the one who provides forgiveness, who provides pardon. It is God who justifies. And if God is for us, who is to condemn? Who will be able to stand in God's courtroom that day and issue a sentence of condemnation? Could God change his mind? Could he now find fault? You know, some of us live life that way, though, don't we? We believe that God has loved us. We trust in the gospel. We believe that God has forgiven our sins. He's cleansed us. But when it comes to day to day and we stumble into sin or, we're, or, or we face persecution or some hardship, we start questioning whether or not God loves us. How can, how can you love me? And if this has happened, how, how can you say you love me? But who is to condemn? 
No one. Because Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus died while you hated him. Jesus died for you when you were convinced that you didn't need him. When you were convinced of your own righteousness, when you were convinced you were good enough, that you had enough in the scales, that you didn't need God, Jesus died for you while you denied that he even existed for some of you. Jesus died for you while you were his enemy. Jesus rose from the dead, vanquishing sin and death, establishing his power and authority to judge and to deliver you. And Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. That's what Paul's talking about here. We have Jesus' death, his crucifixion, we have his resurrection, and we have his ascension. That Jesus rose, that he ascended to the right hand of God, and he is in the Father's presence, and he is advocating for us. Meaning that Jesus himself is personally present before the Father, making sure that his death and his resurrection are applied to your justification. At all times. Jesus' death, his resurrection, his intercession secure our justification and our deliverance. For your salvation to fail, for it to bottom out, for it to turn out to be nothing would require Jesus' death to be discounted. It would require Jesus' resurrection to be voided out. It would require Jesus' intercessions for you to be discarded. And that would require a fracture in the Trinity. And that would blow up existence. It can't happen. Your eternity, the glory that is promised, depends on your justification, your being right before God the judge on that day. And your justification is secured. It is sealed by Jesus' work on your behalf, his sacrifice, his death his resurrection, his intercessions for you and for me. We prevail because God is for us, because God is on our side. Our justification today then is secured for that future day of judgment. And what keeps us through all of the sufferings of this life then is what? Christ's love for us. Christ's love for us. We prevail because God is for us. And we prevail because Christ loves us. Verse 35. 
Verse 35, Paul continues with another question, but his focus changes. It changes from the courtroom scene and the security of our future deliverance to that which lies behind our justification and our deliverance and that which preserves us in this lifetime, day to day, before we ever get to that final courtroom scene. And that is Christ's love for us. Paul says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let's talk about what Paul means by this word separate. Because the idea here is not just, hey, no matter what you go through, Jesus still loves you. But instead, no matter what you face, what you must endure, Jesus' love for you is actively guiding, sustaining, and keeping you because nothing can separate you from his love. Only God can love this way. Nothing can keep God from loving you. Nothing can remove you from his attention or care. Now let me explain what I mean by that with an example. I loved my grandfather. We called him Bobo. Bobo. That's what came out instead of grandpa by the oldest grandchild in our family, Bobo. I loved my Bobo. He died in 1994. Old age, he was 84. He was a believer. I have the hope of heaven. I have the hope to see him again. But once my grandfather died... Did I stop loving him? No. But did my love have any way of impacting him? No. I couldn't express it to him. I could not help him wash his car. I could not get him a cup of coffee in the morning. Death separated my grandfather from my love. In that sense, that doesn't mean I still didn't have love in my heart. And there are thousands of things in life that can separate you from the love of somebody who loves you or someone from your love. It might be geography. It might be a son or a daughter who rebels. It could be any number of things. Ultimately, it is always death for us, for the human race. When Paul says nothing can separate you from the love of God, Paul is not talking in those terms. That's why I say only God can love this way. Only God can truly love in a way that you can't be separated from. Because the idea here is not that as you go through this horrendous tragedy and darkness covers you, that God is off somewhere and he still remembers you and loves you in some way. And that somehow that's supposed to bring hope into your situation, to know that somewhere out there, God still cares about you. That's not the love of God. When Paul says nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, he's saying that no matter where you are, how dark it seems, how bad it is, how badly you've sinned, that Jesus Christ is still present. His love is with you. He is working. 
in the midst of all of that. His love is still expressed. His love is still extended. His love is still actively moving in all of the circumstances of your life, whether you know it, accept it, think about it, find hope in it or not. That is the promise. That is the truth that Paul is getting at. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. No one and no thing could ever achieve this. Nothing can ever, 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 ever separate you. Nothing can ever remove us from God's love, from his presence, from his working and bringing us home. Examples? Tribulation. Distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. These are all hardships we might face in this life. These are all hardships that Christians will face at times to some degree or another. In fact, these are all hardships the Apostle Paul suffered You can find them where he lists what he suffered in 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12. He mentions all of these things there except for the sword. We know from church history that this was actually how Paul would be executed, though, by the Roman government. It's by the sword. We may not face these hardships in their extremes, but it is to be our mindset. Watch. It is to be our mindset in this life to accept these as the norm. Even in relatively comfortable America. And I say relatively because there are a lot worse places in the world. You know this. At the same time, we do face them in our own culture is not as outwardly sanitized as maybe it used to be. It's more openly hostile to the gospel and to God's people. But this is to be our mindset. This is why Paul quotes here Psalm 44, 22 in verse 36 of Romans 8. Psalm 44, 22. Have you ever wondered what Paul's talking about here? Why does he just throw this in there? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul is saying, that's to be your mindset. This life is passing. Our lives are expendable. Now, if you read that and you go, wow, that sounds pretty dreary. That's to be my mindset. I'm just lined up like a sheep for the slaughter. But you see, that is seeing this verse without an eternal perspective. (laughs) In fact, the way Paul presents it here is not one in which, okay, you better prepare yourself for the worst. Paul's saying it in such a sense that this is the way it goes. This is what the rest of this life is like. The glory will outweigh the sufferings. And even this, if you're lined up 
You feel like you're destined for slaughter, for suffering, for pain, whatever it is. You're just in line. It's, you have to count your life as expendable in this life because nothing can separate you from God, whatever you're lined up for. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Our perspective of these sufferings is to be, yeah, of course, not despairing and not stoic, not grit your teeth, Just be, yeah, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. This, that's the way the world is. That's what, this, what Jesus said. You will suffer for my name's sake. They'll haul you in before kings and council, governments, and, and they'll kill you. But are we victims? Are we cut off from God? Are we alienated? Are we disqualified from God's purposes, somehow thwarted? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Boy, this is more than just a slogan for Christian athletes, okay? This is not a cat poster. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. Huper nikomen. Huper, hyper, super. Nikomen conquerors. You recognize this word Nico. We have the word Nike, one of our best sports apparel brands, most well-known, most famous. Also Nikon cameras, photo equipment. They've taken this word and branded it. We are more than conquerors. We are super conquerors. Over all of these sufferings, we know only an overwhelming victory. And I think Paul says we are super conquerors in the same way that he's, he talks back in verse 18 and following right before this, about how the sufferings of this life are, can't compare with the glory that's to come. We don't barely just squeak by out of this life. We are super conquerors. We conquer by enduring. We conquer by remaining faithful, by believing God's promise of glory even in the face of great hardship and suffering. Here is our confidence. Here's why we can face these kinds of hardships with joy and confidence and glory. Verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life. Okay, so death is the ultimate tyrant of humanity and the terror and the grief that it brings. It is death that separates us from life that separates our souls from our bodies. Neither death nor life, the living out of life with all of its joys and all of its hardships. This tension between death and life is presented the same way in other places in the New Testament. 
Many of you are familiar with Philippians 1, 20 and 21. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's Paul's great expendable statement. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what Romans 8 is talking about right here. We are like sheep for the slaughter. That's what he's saying. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul says the same kind of thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Neither death nor life. Nor angels nor rulers, Paul continues. Here's the angelic realm, whether angels who are faithful or rulers, which is probably fallen angels here, demons, we would think of them, call them. There are hostile spiritual and cosmic forces at work to ruin, to overthrow God's purposes, to overthrow God's reign, to thwart his saving of his people. Can they separate you from the love of Christ? You might be wondering, well, what about good angels? How can they, how, do, how would they contribute? They certainly, they're loyal to God, their creator. They would not be seeking to thwart him, no. But angels are not all-powerful. Maybe it is, the idea here is that angels could fail in their mission. We see angels sent by God to protect God's people, to guard his people, whether it's a nation of Israel or whether that's believers, whatever it is, they're on missions. Can an angel failing or a or a demon schemes. Nor things present, nor things to come. So nothing today, nothing tomorrow, or the next. Whatever great events, whatever great dangers, whatever tragedies lie ahead. God is never surprised. God is never taken aback. Nor powers. Nothing that wields powers or power or might or influence in the world. No government, no political system, no legislation, no ideology, no injustice, no abuse of power. Nor height, nor depth. So no spatial divide. No one could blast you off into space or cast you into the depths or bury you at the core of the earth where God's love does not hold you and give you victory. Nor anything else in all of creation. Just in case you can actually think of something that doesn't fit in one of these categories. Maybe earthquakes, typhoons, natural disasters, fires, war. Nothing else in all of creation will be able 
to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. That should give you confidence. That should hold you fast. Let me return to the question I asked earlier. How will you live differently? Not only because of Romans 8, 31 through 39, but all of these truths that we've been talking about, if you've been here at Crossway over the last couple of months, we've been in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. This is really the climax to that whole section. How will you live differently? What then shall we say to these things? Don't doubt God. Don't doubt him. Don't believe the gospel's offer of forgiveness, its promise of justification, having reconciled you to God, the grace that you stand in. Don't believe in those things and then live in unbelief. Trust in God's love for you. To believe the gospel is to believe the whole gospel, right? With all of its promises, including the promises that God is for you and that God loves you with an unbreakable, unchangeable love. Father, help us again we ask to appropriate these truths. And I pray that you would enable, especially those who might be discouraged, who might be facing particular times of suffering today. Lord, that you would use these promises to comfort them. Lord, help us to all dwell upon them. These ought to be promises that are at the front of our hearts and minds all the time that come to our tongues, that come to our conversations with each other, often, frequently even. Lord, help these truths to to seep down into our souls and that the greater our faith, the more enduring our walk is, the greater is your glory, which is our, our highest desire, our highest calling, In your name we ask all of these things, amen.